Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry over there. And I don't know if I said it or not, but I'm Josh Clark, and this is Stuff You Should Know. And uh, I'm pretty excited about this one. Freedom! Freedom schools, yeah. <laughs> we would be the best singing duo ever if that's how it worked. Yeah. I would just go big and you would just Lou Reed it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is that what I'm doing? Is Lou reading? I don't even Maybe. know my own heritage. Sort of speak singing. Oh, okay. You know? Yeah. That's what Lou Reed did. Yeah. Uh, maybe go to the refrigerator, baby. <laughs> yeah, remember that great those, song he had me, about the fridge? Right. <laughs> Give me one of those frozen Snicker bars. They're not the ice cream kind, the actual Snicker bar I put into the freezer. Right. <laughs> Bring it over here, baby. That song? That's the one. <laughs> and Nico would go, I am placing it in the freezer. Yeah. Was she German? Uh, Yeah, she had to be German. Was okay. she German? Mm-hmm. I mean, she was if not German, Austrian or something. Well, I'm just saying I didn't even know. I, I knew nothing about her except Nico sat in with the Velvet Underground for a while. And then my amazing vocal talents. Yeah, that was good. That's what <laughs> clued me to the idea that she was a, a German. There's a movie about her later years that I want to see that, that came out this year or something. I think it was called Taken. Liam Neeson played her. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Chuck, we're talking about freedom schools, as we already said, and then mm-hmm. we got silly. Now we're getting back to it, okay? That's right, because this is not a silly topic. No. but and, it's, it, and it has a COA at the beginning. Should we talk about that? Yeah, I think we should. Yeah, so this is about the Freedom Schools, uh, which, as you will very soon find out, uh, were in Mississippi during the Civil Rights Movement. I mean, like, in probably the most dangerous place in the country. Yeah. It, during the most dangerous point in the Civil Rights Movement. That's where this, this story takes place. That's right. And Freedom Schools uh, were great, and they were a great thing, and we're happy to be talking about them. But... Uh, in a lot of the quotes and in a lot of the curriculum of the freedom schools themselves, uh, they use the word Negro, and uh, it's obviously not a word that people use anymore, but some of the like curriculum class titles feature that word, and so just uh, letting everyone know that that's coming. Right. And we're not going to say, we're just going to read their curriculums and their quotes sure. as it existed back then. Yeah, I think this this heads up, yeah, we're, I mean, we were just kind of sticking to the vernacular of the times. Right. Being used in context. Yes. Within reason, of course. <laughs> sure. So um, so this this takes place in the summer of 1964. But I want to go back a little further than that to 1954. Ooh. With the, um, the groundbreaking, sea-changing board, Brown versus Board of Education ruling. Yeah. Where the Supreme Court said, you know that, that separate but equal thing that we said back in 1896 was constitutional? Yeah. The word, that's not true. Segregation is not constitutional. It's not legal anymore. Everybody needs to integrate schools at least. Mm-hmm. But they failed to say and do it by 1964 or 1960 right. or next year. Yeah. They just said, I think, something like in a, a per, like a deliberate and speedy manner or something like that. Um, and so Mississippi said, oh, well, you didn't tell us when we had to do it by. Let so just, how about never? Yeah, let me just— Dig my heel in here and the other one in here, and we're just going to keep our schools segregated. And not only segregated, Mississippi had some of the poorest excuses for schools for African-American students Mm -hmm. in the country. Um, The state average for Mississippi, uh, I think in 1960, was that they spent four times more 
on schools for white children mm -hmm. than they did on schools for black children. Yeah. That was just the state average. Right. In some towns, it was way worse. You're talking about budgets, spending budgets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In Tunica, they spent $172.80 per white pupil on average in 1962. That's per year? That was in that year. Per school year? Yeah. $172.80. They spent $5.99 per black pupil. Wow. Yeah. And that's just kind of how it was. Like, you went to school in sharecropper schools or mm -hmm. what they were called if you were a black kid and you were you got a, a terrible education by comparison um white kids schools usually ran for about six months out of the year yeah if you were an african-american kid in mississippi your school might run three if if it was even open that year the rest of the time you're expected to be out in the fields working and just knowing your place basically yeah and you know as you'll see throughout this podcast those sharecropper schools uh, not only did they fail them fundamentally on things like literacy mm -hmm. and maths and things like that, but they also failed them historically because – and I think things have gotten a lot better, but one could make the argument that history classes still fail right. historically in telling the true picture of some of these things. Absolutely. But back then, it was like at the sharecropper schools here, you're learning white history and – it's not just like this is the important history, but like this is the only history. The Yours only, does not matter. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and even worse than that, when they were taught about their heritage or whatever, it was usually in relation to slavery. And it was also in relation to how um, how black people preferred to be slaves. Right. And that they were far worse off after the War of Northern Aggression freed them. Yeah. And that, that was just, they weren't interested in politics. They weren't really self-starters and they needed white people to guide them. That's right. That was the education you got as a, a, an African-American kid in Mississippi around the time of the civil rights struggle. And um, by the time 1964 rolled around, there was a lot of agitation going on in the African-American community. Mm -hmm. A lot of people saw, hey, there's no integration going on. Yeah. Things have, haven't changed at all. We're being kept down by Jim Crow era laws, and we're going to agitate for change. And in response to that, there was a lot of violence against that agitation for change from the KKK from the state police, from local sheriffs, from the local sheriff's redneck brother. Oh, yeah. Like, you could get yourself killed just by going to vote, register to vote. Yeah, and uh, if the police were not inciting or committing the violence themselves, they certainly would turn a blind eye yeah. to anything that was going on. Exactly. And not do police work. So it's in this context around December of 1963 that a guy named Robert Moses— who uh, was one of the members of, I believe he was with CORE, the, uh, no, I'm sorry, he was with uh, SNCC, the uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee um, in Mississippi. Uh, and he said, I've got an idea. We're going to call it Freedom Summer. Yeah, and the Freedom Summer, and by the way, big shout out to Dave Ruse. Big shout out. One of our uh, stable of writers these days mm -hmm. uh, from the old HowStuffWorks.com website. Dave mm -hmm. is helping us out. And boy, he does a great job. He does. It's always a pleasure. Yep. So thanks, Dave. But uh, yeah, the Freedom Summer was uh, in 1964. And the whole goal of the Freedom Summer was really to get people registered to vote uh, en masse. Right. That was the stated goal of it. Yeah, for sure. But the subtext of it, the, um, John Hale wrote a book on Freedom Summer and Freedom Schools, which we're going to talk about. And he actually helped Dave out with this article. So shout out to John Hale, too. But he had a quote from John Lewis the great John Lewis, sure. um, who said basically the point of Freedom Summer was to force a showdown between local 
authorities and federal authorities mm -hmm. because the local authorities were uh, abusively enforcing white supremacy and the federal uh, um, authorities were turning a blind eye to it. Yeah. And so they said, we need to, we need to put ourselves in visible harm's way and, and force a showdown between these two entities. Yeah, and 1964 is key. Uh, it wasn't just sort of picked um, randomly. It was key because the Civil Rights Act was going to be signed in July of that year, uh, but it did not include uh, black voting rights protection. And uh, the Democratic National Convention was going to be at the end of August of that year in Atlantic City. And this is basically like, let's get... Uh, black folks register to vote so they can go in there and unseat these Dixiecrats, right. these Southern Democrats who were still very much segregationist. In Mississippi, their, for, the, for the Democratic convention, their delegation, the Mississippi delegation, was mm -hmm. all white. Yeah, and that was another big, big goal was to create a separate black delegation uh, for that national convention. Right. So to get this to force the showdown between local authorities and federal authorities, the, the, the civil rights activists like Robert Moses working in Mississippi mm -hmm. had zero illusions that, that the federal government was going to come down and help them out no right. matter what they were doing. Yeah. Instead, they would be forced to act if white northern kids, mm -hmm. the children of these federal authorities, mm -hmm. came down to Mississippi and put themselves in harm's way, too. Yeah, kids meaning, you know, college students. Right, right. Kids, so, kids to old folks like us. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Youngsters. But they weren't sending down like 12-year-olds. No, 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 nothing yeah. like that. But like college students who wanted to come down and help people who truly believed in the cause of civil rights. Yeah, white, liberal, progressive, northern, uh, oftentimes Jewish, uh, but not always. But as far as Getting the federal authorities to pay attention, that first descriptor is the most important one, white. Yes. Because, again, they knew in Mississippi no federal authorities were going to pay attention to that. And, I mean, they had good reason to think that. Kennedy had the Civil Rights Act as far back as 1960, but agreed not to bring it up in Congress because they were still trying to figure out how to keep the Dixiecrats happy right. and maybe get some sort of integration going or civil rights going. And um, they've just been left hung out to dry mm -hmm. by the federal authorities so many times that they were totally right in that assumption. Yeah, and they knew that in order to really affect change, um, like you said, they were going to get no assistance from the federal government. Right. So they need to do it on the ground, grassroots style. Um, and what they were really looking toward was the future. And they knew that getting kids involved was the key. And the only way to do that, or they figured the best way to do that, and I think they were right, mm -hmm was to devise what was called the Freedom Schools right. in the summer of 1964, which ended up being 41 summer schools, community-based summer schools, where uh, they had core curriculums for sure. Mm -hmm. But what they really were trying to do was teach young black kids about their history and their self-worth and uh, give them a path forward in the United States yeah, with a voice. Like give them an education that they couldn't find anywhere in those sharecropper schools, where the sharecropper schools point was to keep them down, uneducated, and out of politics so that they couldn't vote. Um, these freedom schools were meant to do the exact opposite, yeah. to teach them their self-worth, but also to say, like, here's how you can actually enact change and to create the next generation mm -hmm. 
of civil rights activists in Mississippi. That was the point of the Freedom School. Yeah, and like it was hitting me as I was reading this how progressive that was yeah. for 1964 because that would be progressive now right? in places like even Georgia. I Absolutely, think. and it's still going on now as we'll see like the, the uh, Children's Defense Fund revived the Freedom Schools back in the 80s and I think they still have them. And it does still have a tinge of subversion, sadly, yeah. teaching black kids in America their self-worth. Yeah. That's that's sad. All right. That's a great preamble. Should we take a break? Whew. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We are going to take a break, and we're going to come back and really dig into the mission of the Freedom Schools right after this. Okay, so Freedom Schools, uh, again, launched and proposed by SNCC SNCC SNCC. SNCC leader (laughs) Charlie Cobb uh, in December of 63. And they had three – the original idea was let's get 11th and 12th graders Mm -hmm. because they're just on the cusp of being in in the real world. Um, Arguably already were in the real world. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Uh, And they had three stated purposes that they wanted to accomplish. uh, Supplement – what they aren't learning in high school, yeah, simple enough. Uh, number two, give them a broad intellectual and academic experience during the summertime to bring back uh, to students in the classrooms, I guess in the fall. Yeah. And then form the basis for statewide student action. Like, here's how you can boycott something. Here's how you can raise awareness. Right. Like, teach them how to be grassroots activists. And also, one of the things that they they wanted to teach them that we'll see is this is how things work. Like, here's the nuts and bolts of this power structure that mm-hmm. we live in that holds us down. And here, understanding how it works, you can start to poke around and figure out how to overcome that. That was a huge, huge part of it. That's right. So it all starts with volunteers. Right. And these, like we said, are mainly college students. Uh, they saw this by way of uh, ads in the New York Times mm-hmm. and other groups and college campuses that basically said, hey, this is what we want to do. You've been watching this on TV every night. Um, I know that you might live in Manhattan or Brooklyn or someplace, but uh, if you are a young, white, liberal, progressive, and you really want to make a difference, <clears throat> get off your couch and come down to Mississippi for the summer. Sure. Endanger your life. Yeah. And help teach these kids. Yeah, and I think I think something like a thousand. I saw like as much as twenty five hundred. A bunch of people answered this call. Um, like northern, mostly white college students came down to Mississippi for this Freedom Summer, not just the Freedom Schools. Yeah, yeah. I think 280 of them uh, ended up being teachers out of about 700 or so who volunteered for the Freedom Summer. Yeah, and I, I've heard different stories on how the people who got selected to be teachers for the Freedom Schools were selected. Mm-hmm. This article makes it sound like... Um, the the greener ones, the ones who really shouldn't be put in harm's way, were assigned to the freedom schools. But from what I've read, they were very much in harm's way as being teachers of these freedom schools. Yeah. But regardless of, of who got assigned to become a, uh, a freedom school teacher or why, they were told you're going to have to pay your way to and from Mississippi. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to pay your own room and board, so expect to, to have to shell out over 200 bucks 
or up to 200 bucks over the course of the summer. Yeah, it also said they would uh, live basically in the homes of local black families. I wonder if they paid them rent. I don't know if they paid them rent, but the black families who did put these white northern college students up over the summer to mm-hmm. teach freedom schools yeah. very much put their own families oh, and yeah. homes in harm's way. For sure. Because the freedom school and actually the whole freedom summer volunteers who came down— mm-hmm. They didn't take Mississippi by surprise. The white power establishment in Mississippi knew they were coming. Yeah. And they were very unhappy about this. Mm-hmm. They said publicly that these people would be treated as invaders, mm-hmm. that this was a, a second war of northern aggression. They doubled the number of highway patrol officers and not to keep the peace. Um, it, they, they, they knew they were coming down and they were not happy about these freedom schools or the freedom summer in general. Yeah, and I guess we should go ahead and say right off the bat to add gravity to the situation. And there may be a short stuff in here. I've been wanting to do one on the disappearance of these three men. But uh, the core training crew, Congress of Racial Equality was core, and uh, they were helping out with the Freedom Rides in the early 60s -hmm. on the buses in Selma in the Deep South. And there were uh, three gentlemen, Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner, two white men, and another colleague, James Cheney, a young black man that worked with CORE, they went missing um, in Longdale, Mississippi, and were basically taken and murdered. So this is at the very – this is before – a few months before the Freedom Schools were to launch. And you're going down there knowing that these men disappeared under mysterious circumstances. I'm pretty sure it was like a week before basically because it happened like they got the news during the orientation in Oxford, Ohio that they held for the Freedom School teachers. The news came through that these three guys had gone missing and then were later found murdered. And some people did back out and were like, I can't take this risk. Uh But it seems like most of them pressed on. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think some people's – resolve was doubled by that kind of thing too. But their disappearance and ultimately their deaths proved that idea that these uh, the civil rights activists in Mississippi needed these white northern volunteers to come down mm-hmm. because James Cheney, he was a local uh, Mississippi activist. He was a black guy. And um, Schwarner, Michael Schwarner and... Goodman. Goodman. Both of them were white. Mm-hmm. And because they went missing along with Cheney, 150 FBI agents and 200 what are they, sailors from the local naval station mm-hmm. Jags. Sh- showed up, sure, showed up <laughs> to search for these guys. Yeah. And Michael Schwerner's widow said, this never would have happened if, if my husband had been a black man. Yeah, for that sure. That all of this was happening because he was white. Uh, I do want to, uh, There's this is rife with a lot of quotes that a lot of them we're not going to read, but I did want to read this one from Howard Zinn. Uh, this is the message at this orientation that you talked about at the Western College for Women in Oxford. Mm -hmm. So you're showing up. You're like, I want to volunteer. I want to do the right thing. They sit you down in an auditorium and say this. You'll arrive in Ruleville, which is a place. It it is. Ruleville. Mm -hmm. In the Delta, it will be 100 degrees. You'll be sweaty and dirty. You won't be able to bathe often or sleep well or eat good food. I don't know about that. I bet that was some pretty decent food. That kind of stuck out to me, too. (laughs) Howard Zinn might not have thought so. Uh, The first day of school, there may be four teachers and three students, uh, and the local Negro minister will phone you to say you can't use his church basement after all because his life has been threatened. And the curriculum uh, we've drawn up, um, Negro history and American government, may be something you know only a little about yourself. Well, you'll knock on doors all day in the hot sun to find students. You'll meet on someone's lawn under a tree. You'll tear up the curriculum and teach what you know. 
And it seems like that's really kind of what happened. It was very prescient, yeah. I don't know if that quote was long after him describing it, but if that's what they told them at orientation before the Freedom Schools, then, yeah, that's exactly how it ended up. And how many, I think originally they were going to target, like I said, 11th and 12th graders, Mm -hmm. 20 schools, about 1,000 students. Right. But when, you know, when school day started, Parents heard about this and brought everybody, basically. They did. Something like, I've seen as much as 2,500, but um, at least 2,000 students were enrolled in Freedom Schools in Mississippi this summer. Yeah, and they doubled the number of schools, plus mm-hmm. one, to yeah, 41. To 41. Some, I think Hattiesburg had six different schools. Meridian had a school with 200, and, 200 students. That was the biggest one. Um, it was, and they originally intended, like you said, 11th and 12th graders, maybe as young as middle, like middle schoolers, mm-hmm. possibly, but really that was it. And it ended up being elementary school kids. I believe there was an 80-year-old enrolled at one of the freedom schools. Um, and it, it, it just became a, a sensation in Mississippi yeah. among the African-American community. Um, and there was, a, there was a New York Times article. I, they sent a reporter down to kind of cover this. And they, the reporter was in Holly Springs. And there was a school teacher from Chicago named Aviva Futorian. And she said... They were probably like, are you from outer space? <laughs> <laughs> kind of sounds like it. The silver jumpsuit she was wearing didn't help. But um, she said that they, they were teaching under a, a sweet gum tree. And this became kind of like a... That, that was another reason why that Oxford quote from Howard Zinn was so prescient. It's yeah. like a lot of times, like, they didn't have any place to actually meet they had to meet outside or on somebody's front porch or something like that. Because someone might say, like he said in the in the quote, like, "Hey, use my church basement." Mm-hmm. But then when the KKK found out, mm-hmm. they're you know they may burn a cross at, in that churchyard, right. and then that preacher has to say, "I'm sorry, I can't take the risk." Well, so you know, Schwerner and Cheney and Goodman, when they went when they were murdered, mm-hmm. kidnapped and murdered, they were investigating the burning of the church right. that they were going to be holding their freedom school. That's what they were doing yeah. down there. And they went to go find out what happened, and that's when they went missing. Yeah, so message sent loud and clear. Yeah. So school is outside, which is every kid's favorite thing. Right, and then we'll, as we'll see, there was another, there was at least one school that got firebombed and burned to the ground yeah. after school had already started. Uh, I don't think any, it was like after hours. Right. But the next day... The um, school met in the like yard next to this burned down building that they've been yep. meeting in the day before. Yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah, so there was a lot of. I mean, this wasn't just going to school. There were. Oh yeah. There's a whole state full of white people who violently did not want you to be learning this stuff. Yeah, they were just as organized on you know the defense of this, right? Or I guess the offense. Which would that be? Uh, they weren't defending it. No. To go on the offensive. Sure. I just got mixed up in my head. Yeah, you got it finally. All right. So uh, in the spring of 1964, they met and they were like, uh, listen, we need to get a curriculum together because this is a real school. They're going to tear it up, but we're going to get it down at least. Uh, And the final one uh, had sections for, like I said, uh, reading, writing, arithmetic, Mm -hmm. uh, the three R's, and science. But the bulk of it was um, what they called citizen Curriculum, citizenship curriculum, right. uh, which is basically like African American civics, which they had never heard of, right, and never learned. Yeah, like I, I, I'm sure parents told them stories and stuff, but 
as far as going to school, they had never encountered anything like this before. Well, I mean, depending on the age of their parents, too, their parents might have never heard anything like that before either. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so there was the citizenship curriculum was broken into seven units, and it, each one built upon the last unit. Right. It was meant to basically say, here's the status quo, mm-hmm. here's what's wrong with the status quo, here's how to change to the status quo, or basically the three buckets you could put everything in. Right. And um, the one, I haven't read all of them, but I went and read the fourth one called The Power Structure, Unit 4. Mm-hmm. And I would strongly recommend, I think um, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee's digital archive has it, like, digitized. Yeah, that's the one you sent me, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But go read it. It's called Unit 4, Introducing the Power Structure. And it, it, it explains how and why... Uh, White people are taught to be afraid mm-hmm. uh, of and hate black people. Mm-hmm. How black people are taught that they're inferior mm-hmm. and that the reason behind the whole thing is money and profits. Yeah. And that all of the racism and hatred and fear and crime and all of that stuff is all just window dressing around this power structure that's meant to keep people servile and available for cheap labor so that some people can profit more off of their work. Yeah. It's the most disgusting thing I've ever read, but it's also one of the most eye-opening. And it was designed for 11th and 12th graders to back in the 60s. And it still rings 100% true today. Yeah, the one that I'm going to dig in and read, I didn't have time, but uh, number six uh, material things and soul things. Yeah. So this is almost the last one um, on the citizenship curriculum units, uh, and that is that black people will not achieve true freedom by trying to acquire more stuff, but by using their insights about oppression to create a new kind of society. And I think that's so important in these in this curriculum. It's like we're, we're not trying to teach you like, hey, go out there and uh, try and gain status in society. So you can get a bigger house right? or or things that you see that these white people have. Right. Which I'm sure was, you know, you covet things. That's what people do. So I'm sure that was a natural inclination. Like, I want the stuff that they have. But uh, it's so important to say, like, that the stuff isn't what matters. Well, not only just stuff in general, but there's they kind of walk the students through it in this curriculum where they say, like, what are some things that white people have that you don't have that right. you wish you had? What are some things white people have that you don't want? Um, and what, the, 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 the purpose of this curriculum wasn't to teach black kids to hate white kids. No. As a matter of fact, it actually teaches them to understand white people more. Yeah. Let me read you this quote from this Unit 4. We have learned that although it seems that white people have better schools, for instance, that they pay for it by learning lies and by learning to hate and be afraid— We have learned that we are misled by these lies, too, that the myths have taught us to believe that we are inferior and dumb and that we have made no contributions to society. Wow. So it's it's saying, like, don't hate white people. They're they're being duped by this, too. Right. But they're they're patsies in this power structure, too. They just happen to not be the the group that's being stepped on. Right. You know, but they're still being used and abused. Yeah. School children in particular Mm -hmm. uh, for context. Um. And well, and it's interesting too when you just talked about like uh, they wanted the same uh, things, not necessarily stuff, as the white students. Yeah. One of the most popular classes, because you know 
they they would get in there and say, this is what I want to learn. And that's the whole part about tearing up the curriculum. Right. One of the most popular uh, subjects in one of these schools um, was French. And they wanted to learn French because they knew white kids had a French teacher. Mm-hmm. Like something as innocuous as that. Like, I want to learn French too. Right. And I mean, that was the point in schools, not just like sit down and shut up and listen. This is what we're here to teach you. It was, what do you want to learn? Yeah. What are you guys going to feel good about yourselves for knowing that you came, you didn't know when you came in here? And so teaching in the freedom schools that summer was super improvisational and spontaneous. Yeah. Collaborative. They really did tear up the curriculum in a lot of, a lot of cases. Um, Sounds like a good model for schools, period. Yeah, it you sounds know? like one of those like Waldorf schools or a Montessori school or right. something like that. It sounds very much like one of those like child led. Yeah, yeah. Um, but th- I mean, that was that was the point was to not to to drill them with what the adults thought they should learn, but to to raise up their self worth and self esteem and whatever that took is what they taught them. Yeah, and it's cool that they didn't. Um, not only were they concerned about civics and the core academics. But something that could have very easily been pushed to the side is uh, creative pursuits. Right. And they really embraced that because they found that these students uh, were natural poets and really eager to get in there and read and write poetry. Mm -hmm. Um, They read Robert Frost and Langston Hughes and Gertrude Stein and wrote a lot of poetry themselves. Some of it is just heartbreaking, some of it inspiring, some of it both. Um, There was one school in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Uh, Freedom School students of St. John's Methodist Church, they wrote their own Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm. And it's it's all in here in this article. We can't go through the whole thing, but I encourage you to like read this thing in full. It's really heady, like advanced stuff. It really is. Um, there are also newspapers were really big at the Freedom Schools, all, they, and they qualified as alternative newspapers. And that guy, John Hale, the professor from South Carolina who wrote the book on Freedom Schools. Literally. Literally. (laughs) He says that um, in Mississippi that summer, the Freedom School student-run newspapers were the biggest source of civil rights news in the entire state. Amazing. And that they were the state's first taste of alternative news ever. But that like almost all of the 41 schools had their own newspapers. And in some communities, that's that's how some adults were learning what they needed to do to go register to vote by reading it in the student-run Freedom School newspaper. Yeah, I was a newspaper staffer. Mm-hmm. I think you were too probably, right? Sure. Or were you just starting your own papers? Sure. <laughs> but I was a newspaper staffer in high school, and there's something about like putting together a publication that even I see little kids uh, doing for fun, and I remember doing for fun. So it's it doesn't surprise me that like – that the newspaper was every school had their own, and it seems like they were really, really into it. I could see your your little family newspaper. You're like <laughs> extra, extra. Mom puts too much hot sauce and eggs this morning. They ruined. Well, it it's on my mind because I just got back from vacation, and uh, we went with one, two, three, four older girls plus my younger daughter, uh-huh. and they did a uh, the beach blotter. They put together their own little magazine That's for the very week. Cute. And I just remembered. I'm like, man, kids are just drawn to putting together newspapers and magazines. Yeah. And these kids in the Freedom Schools leapt at the chance uh, to interview people and to, you know, be little cub reporters mm-hmm. and type this stuff up. They were really big on taking typing classes mm-hmm. because that would lead to work, obviously, later on as well. Um, I just thought it was really kind of a cool part of this whole thing. Yeah, no, it's super cool. Uh, as was the theater. Uh, there was a traveling group called the Free Southern Theater that would perform a play called In White America, uh, and they would 
go around to freedom schools and perform this play. Right. And there were music groups. Uh, the great, great folk singer and activist Pete Seeger went down there, of course, and toured the freedom schools. Yeah. It was like, here's how you play a G chord and sing about, like, things that matter. Right. Pretty great. Why don't you go on over to the fridge? <laughs> Give me a frozen Snicker bar. No, no, no. I don't even like frozen Snickers. That's the big reveal at the end of the song. But you know Lou Reed does. Sure. Or did. Yeah. Um, R.I.P. So sh- should we take another break? Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a break, everybody. So sit tight, and we'll be right back. So, like I said, Chuck, this experiment uh, in pushing Mississippi into the civil rights era was not well received by the no. white power establishment. And it, I think it kind of varied from one community to another. Uh, and But I, none, none of them were happy from what I understand. And the ones that were unhappiest with the freedom schools were very, very violent um, in retaliation for these things. This one summer, this freedom summer, lasted 10 weeks. I think Mm -hmm. the Freedom Schools lasted six weeks. But the Freedom Summer itself lasted 10 weeks. And in that 10-week period, 30 homes of of black residents, 37 black churches were firebombed. Yeah. In one summer in Mississippi, Um, demonstrators were shot at 35 different times Mm -hmm. by the police. Okay. Um, 80 volunteers were attacked or beaten by white mobs or police officers. There were six known murders that summer related to the Freedom Summer. And um, female volunteers were um, sexually assaulted. Yeah. It was a really violent, dangerous place to be doing what they were doing at the time. Yeah, that was, uh, there was one town, Macomb, Mississippi. There were uh, more than a dozen bombings in two months. More than 12 bombings in a two-month period. Twelve and a half. Uh, and there were... Uh, they were called the bombing capital of the world at the time. Again, right. local police turning a blind eye. I get the impression that like they actually qualified as the bombing capital of the world. Yeah, it wasn't Not, just a right. thing written in a Freedom School paper. Right, it wasn't like an offhanded comment. Like they may have qualified as the bombing capital of the world. Yeah. It's crazy. And even if there wasn't like direct violence... There was indirect violence. Intimidation. Intimidation. People would probably drive by and... Uh, Say the worst things. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. So um, it was not a... It was a, a struggle to just make it through the summer. Yeah. Um, but they did, as a matter of fact. And one of the goals of this um, Freedom Schools was to create or help get the Mississippi Democratic Freedom Party, mm-hmm. the antidote to the Dixiecrats in Mississippi, um, seated at the Democratic National Convention. And um, they they attempted to do that and actually got a, a meeting at the Credentials Committee of the DNC, but were ultimately turned down. Yeah, they had delegates. This is just amazing. They had delegates from all 41 of these schools, and they met at a statewide convention in Meridian, Mississippi, mm-hmm. um, a place I have been through on a Greyhound bus. <laughs> wow. That's a country song in motion right there. For sure. That was a place where they stopped us and the drug dogs got on. Oh, gotcha. In Meridian, huh? Yeah. And I was like, oh, interesting. I never thought about Greyhound buses. It's probably a great way to transport drugs. Sure. 
but probably not. Hey, uh, speaking of country music, have you seen that Ken Burns documentary? Not yet. I've heard it's great. Oh, my. Is it good? I'm into country music now. <laughs> well, I saw your Dixie Chicks tattoo on your neck, so I wonder what that was all <laughs> it's about. It's just pen right now. I haven't, I haven't pulled the trigger all the way okay. on it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that. It's good. So uh, they wrote these these kids, these delegates went down there. They wrote their own political platform mm-hmm. for the uh, MFDP. Mm-hmm. And it was – it's amazing. Like these are kids that in six weeks' time went from just uh, basically having no hope whatsoever to fully forming a delegation and, and writing – uh, their own political platform and presenting it in public, right? And it wasn't it wasn't like, hey, let's get these kids seated at the DNC. Like the Mississippi Democratic Freedom Party was made up of adult activists, but the the um, kids from the Freedom Schools helped write their platform. Yeah, um, they also formed from this uh, delegation that met at the end of the summer the Mississippi Student Union. And this actually brought to fruition one of the other stated goals of Freedom Schools, which was creating the next generation of activists. Right. Because when Freedom School was over and um, sharecropper schools started back again, right. or even integrated schools around the state, all of a sudden there were kids wearing like one man, one vote buttons, yeah. which could get you expelled and actually did get some kids expelled. But there were like little civil rights activists showing up to school aware now of the situation they were dealing with and ready to take it on. Yeah, 25 of them uh, volunteered to be the first to desegregate their local high schools. Yeah. So that call comes out like we have to desegregate. Um, Who's going to be the one? I know just the people. To walk in there, and 25 of these uh, graduates of the Freedom Schools did so. Yeah. Um, So it was a a big deal. I mean, they they managed to create um, the, the, the next generation of activist leaders, but one of the other kind of the through lines of the civil rights struggle during this time Mm -hmm. and of the freedom schools themselves was the idea that if you had, I think the quote was, um, if you have strong people or no, strong people don't need strong leaders. Right. And a, a civil rights activist named Ella Baker said that. And the point was like, if you teach everybody how to, how to, how to struggle for themselves, how to fight for themselves, how to stand up for themselves. Mm-hmm. You don't have to wait around for a Martin, a, a once in a you know handful of generations person like Martin Luther King right. Jr. to come along and lead the way. Right. The people can lead the way themselves. Right. And that was one of the things that they were doing with the Freedom Schools, not just trying to come up with like the next leaders. They needed leaders, sure, but also to make everybody who came to the Freedom School like yeah. aware and ready for action. So one of the sad... Um Sad legacies was, you know, we said at the beginning that what they wanted to do was one of their big goals was to seat the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party at that 64 convention in August. Mm -hmm. And they won a public hearing, which was a big win in and of itself, with the DNC committee that was broadcast on live TV. Uh, The widow of Michael Schwerner showed up to talk. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. showed up to talk. And the last one, and this is just very sad and shameful. Uh, The last speaker, and they said, uh, Dave describes her as the most dangerous to that Democratic establishment, was a former sharecropper named Fannie Lou Hamer. Did you see her testimony? Yeah. She was brave as they come. She was as brave as they come. Brave brave and pissed. Yeah. But her testimony was interrupted uh, on national TV by President Lyndon Johnson. He called an impromptu press conference Mm -hmm. in the middle of her testimony So all the TV breaks away, of course, because the president has a press conference they need to get to. Right. 
and everyone was thinking, all right, this is big news. He's going to announce his VP pick uh, for the 64 election or something like that. And he basically got on TV and sort of ad-libbed, uh, had, today is the nine-month anniversary of the assassination of JFK. Yeah. And uh, black people all around the country and white liberal progressives are going, what's a nine-month anniversary? Right. Like, are you kidding me? Not just liberals and, and um, civil rights activists, but the, the news, too, saw right through it. Oh, sure. And it actually backfired because Johnson interrupting Fannie Lou Hamer became news itself. Yeah. And so Fannie Lou Hamer's testimony stayed on the news for days afterward, got way more exposure because of Johnson's clumsy, ham-fisted attempt. Yeah. And the reason why her testimony and the idea of a Mississippi Democratic Freedom Party was a, um, uh, it was a threat to the, to the Democrats was because if you got rid of the Dixiecrats, if you forced integration on the South— yeah. You were going to lose the solid South. The South had always voted Democrats because they hated the Republicans because the Republicans were the party of Lincoln who forced Reconstruction on them. Right. So Reconstruction comes along, and all of the Southerners went Democrat, mm. and they formed the Dixiecrats, right? Right. Well, when Johnson signed the Civil Rights Amendment in 1965, he said to an aide, uh, we just handed the South to the Republicans for a very long time. Yeah. And it's still the case. Yep. Still today. You are hard-pressed to find a county in the South that's blue. They're all red. Yeah, well, that's not quite true, but... No, it's 100% true. <laughs> but, it, but I mean, okay, let me put it this way. Atlanta's as blue as blue gets. The major- But how many Atlantas are there in the South? No, that's what I'm saying. It, you know, like anywhere else, the urban centers sure. uh, are, are where the blues are. But, I mean, like the north, the northern and southern suburbs, they're all red. Yeah. I mean, Atlanta's like a little island of blue and a, a, a thing of red. Yeah. It's just weird to think that that's the legacy of, of this this time. Still. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, some of these students ended up to um, go on and do great, great things. I think, dare I say, many of them went on to do great things on a smaller scale. But some uh, were sort of known nationally uh, and were pioneers in the black community. Uh, one man, Eddie James Carthan, he was the first black mayor uh, in the Mississippi Delta. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very big deal. He was elected mayor at the age of 28. Which, I mean, back then, though, 28 was like 50 today. Really? Sure. <laughs> you know aging's really regressed since since then. And we talked uh, earlier about the fact that uh, these, these schools continue. Um, they only operated in 1964, but a few of them were transformed into freedom centers, mm-hmm. and they were meeting places uh, for the Mississippi Student Union. They were... Uh, community meeting places, educational resources. Uh, Kindergartens would go there during the day. They would have adult classes at night. And in the 1980s is when the Children's Defense Fund created its own version of the Freedom Schools all those years later. And they now operate in 87 cities across 28 states with their main focus being uh, literacy. Yeah, it's pretty great. But they still honor their African heritage because the school day begins with uh, a Harambee Traditional African welcoming celebration with songs and chants. That goes a little something like, go on (laughs) over to the fridge. Have you noticed, like, it's kind of transformed into singing? It was talking before. You're ditching your Lou Reedness. I guess so. I've outgrown them. Uh, Well, if you want to know more about Freedom Schools, there's a lot of it archived out there on the Internet. Uh, And you could do a lot worse than starting out at the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee's digital archives. They've got a lot of cool stuff on there. 
Um, it's just really, really well done. Nice, short, punchy articles that link to the next thing and the yeah. next thing and just make you want to keep reading. Um, well, since I said Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, it's time for a listener, mate. <laughs> so this was the uh, this is the gentleman who wrote in. We had a few people that wrote in trying to explain our confusion on due process. Oh, is this the guy? This I was is like, the guy. Okay, good. Which, uh, which one was that in? That was in... Uh, it was in Paraphilias. Paraphilias. Because we were talking about like people going to prison for gay sex That's right. in their own home. Right. Consenting in Texas in the 21st century. And this is from Keith from Philadelphia. Uh, not a con law professor, guys, just a law student. But I thought I could help clear this up in the Lawrence v. Texas due process point. Due process is essentially broken up into two prongs. Procedural. Procedural? <laughs> That's it. The little three-year-old racing. Procedural and substantive. Did I say that right? Substantive. Procedural due process is exactly what Josh was talking about. Provides you uh, notice um, an opportunity to be heard before rights are taken away from you. Substantive due process is what the court was referring to in Lawrence. The concept is somewhat complicated, but simply stated, uh, substantive due process just means certain rights that are so fundamental Uh, that no amount of process or procedure could uh, ever legitimately deprive you of them. In other words, consenting adults have such a fundamental right to privacy behind closed doors that to punish them for having consensual sex will violate their due process rights no matter how much procedure they are afforded. Got it. I mean, that is as clear as bell. As clear as bell. Future future (laughs) law professor. I'm losing it here. Thank you, Keith, from Philly. Thank you, Keith. That was a... I mean, I, I emailed him immediately. He's like, a lot of people have written in. Thanks to everybody who wrote in and gave sure. it a shot. Um, but I emailed him back and was like, Keith, this is the first one I've fully gotten. Yeah, Keith. And I think if you stroll on over to your refrigerator, you will find a frozen Snicker bar waiting <laughs> on you. Yeah. Because we snuck into your home in the middle of the night. Or as Chuck <laughs> would say, a frozen one. <laughs> uh, if you want to get in touch with us like Keith did, you can go on to stuffyoushouldknow.com and check out our social links or you can send us a good old-fashioned email. Wrap it up. Spank it on the bottom. Maybe uh, send it along with the frozen Snicker bar to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.